0: you have your Bible uh, not already open to Mark, or excuse me, uh, to Luke, uh, chapter six, uh, you can do so. <clears throat> I decided today to uh, to take a break from our series in Mark, uh, in light of uh, just the change um, of our location this morning, and uh, and even just. Uh, looking ahead to Easter, thinking about Easter grants and thinking about uh, the opportunity uh, that we have during the Easter season uh, to love and serve others uh, and to turn our our minds uh, to Jesus's command in Luke chapter 6, 27 through 36, to uh, to love our enemies. Uh, it really takes us to the heart of the broader question is of, of what does it look like to love our neighbors? Uh, this is uh, what god has called us to to be a people who love him with all our heart soul mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself and so we want to consider uh, this topic and um, it really takes us to a concept that we uh, we've talked about uh, being that being of gospel culture in the life of our church uh, we want to see in the life of treasuring christ a gospel culture. And to talk about gospel culture also means that we have to understand gospel doctrine. Uh, The idea uh, of gospel doctrine is our message, the message of the gospel, of God's divine grace for the undeserving. Uh, And so if that's our message, what does the life of our church look like? And this is what we call gospel culture. And this is our shared experience of that grace Um, that God gives to the undeserving, that we are people who are recipients of that grace and it shapes the way that we relate to one another, the way that we live in this world. This this concept isn't unique to me, but I think I first heard it from an author named Ray Ortland. He says, every church culture is communicating something. If a church is not positively communicating the gospel, both by what it says and by what it is, then that church risks unsaying by its reality what it is saying by its theory. In other words, uh, if we talk a good gospel game, but we don't have a culture defined by the gospel, if our life together isn't animated by that message, then we risk unsaying uh, in reality what we are saying with our words. You could think of it this way in this equation. Gospel doctrine, the right message that's disconnected from a gospel culture, leads to hypocrisy. In other words, if we just talk the talk, but our life it doesn 't reflect it, uh, this leads to hypocrisy. This is a challenge for for everyone, uh, but one that Christians should be especially mindful of that we, we don 't play the hypocrite um, but there's also another dynamic, and that 's where you can have a, a type of gospel culture that 's marked by the uh, the fruit of love and kindness and grace and compassion and patience, uh, but is disconnected from the message of the gospel, a watered down message that doesn't uh, proclaim Jesus's death and resurrection and the reality of our sin and need of repentance and trust in Christ. And so gospel culture minus gospel doctrine leads to to a a fragility of the church. The church is, is fragile because it's not grounded in gospel doctrine. But what we are praying is that God would lead us to be a gospel doctrine, uh, gospelly, gospel doctrine church plus a gospel culture, faithful in message and faithful in our life together, which leads to power because it's animated by God's Spirit to help us to be His people. And that's what my prayer is. And so uh, I've kind of placed this series, this gospel culture series as a kind of a standalone series that we will return to from time to time whenever we have a standalone message, uh, because I want and I, I pray that God helps cultivate this in the life of our church. Um, and so uh, it's funny, I was looking back, I think the last time we, we had a gospel culture uh, sermon uh, was back when we moved into his house uh, about a year ago. Uh, In February, uh, when uh, we talked about humility, uh, defining the life of the church, that we uh, are marked by humility. Well, today I want to talk about how gospel culture is shaped and marked by love, by radical love. And one of my favorite authors, uh, apologist, uh, is a guy named Francis Schaeffer. And he has a quote that that kind of talks about the same concept that... Uh, that Ray Orland kind of pulls some of his thoughts from. He says, One cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. simultaneously. The orthodoxy of doctrine, the right message, and the orthodoxy of community, their life together in the midst... Of the visible church, a community which the world could see. So he's saying that the power of the early church, how you go from 120 in an upper room at Jesus's resurrection to uh, spreading throughout uh, the, the Roman Empire uh, in the first 300 years of the Ro- of, of the of what we consider uh, the first 300 years of. AD, uh, from 0 to 300 AD, what defines uh, the growth of the church in that period is both a faithfulness to the message of the gospel and a, a visible church marked by the truth of the gospel together. He says, by the grace of God, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have... Um, he says, so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But he says this, but an exhibition of the love of God in practice is is beautiful and must be there. So he says the church must be an exhibition, a demonstration of the love of God in practice. I love that picture of what it tells us the church should be. Uh, And as a as a church at Treasury in Christ Church, we we are a church that's going to lean heavy on being faithful to the gospel message. And as we are faithful to that message, we must never lose sight of being an exhibition of the love of God in practice, that it would define how we live and, and how we operate as a church. And so today I want us to talk about how radical love for others flows out of experiencing God's undeserving mercy. Radical love for others flows out of experiencing God's undeserving mercy. The idea that we see in this passage is summed up very simply in the first uh, command that we see in verse 27. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. In many ways, this is a, a expounding upon the great commandment that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 22. But Jesus giving the great commandment, which we know as to love God and love our neighbors, really flows out of the Old Testament. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5, uh, chapter 6 verse 5, we're told that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And then in Leviticus 19, we see that we shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of our own people, but we should love our neighbor as ourself. And this is grounded in God saying, I am the Lord. And so these two commands Jesus brings together when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's a simple message that is really profound and life-altering and life-shaping. To love God and to love your neighbor. But the question that was asked by the, uh, uh, the, the religious leaders and the people of Jesus' day is still kind of a question that we ask today. Well, who is our neighbor? What does it mean To love our neighbor. What's the limit of our love for others? How how much do we really have to love? Do we have to love those people? Um, Or do we just have to love these people? Our passage today in many ways expounds upon the nature of the call that God gives us to love our neighbor. Jesus is, is showing us when we think about what it means to love our neighbors. If we are to love our enemies, then that means... That there really is no, um, you could say, there's, there's no limit for our love towards others. Not only when we think about our neighbors, do we think about maybe those so closely defined, so close to us in proximity, and, and we kind of give ourselves a pass on everybody else, but Jesus goes even further and says, Love your enemies. And you think about this, there there should be layers of love that should be true but consistent in the the church, in the body of Christ. We're called to love God. From that, uh, a love characterized by devotion, worship, and obedience to God's word, we should live lives where the church is marked by love for one another. A deep commitment to one another to serve and meet one another's needs, to bear with one another, to uh, go to four different meeting locations in the span of a year and to navigate trials and circumstances that come our way. This is what it means to be a church. But we aren't just a holy huddle in which we are called to love one another. The love that we have for one another is to spill over and to love those who aren't a part of the family of God. Those who are outside of the family, without the hope of the gospel, who might even, uh, to us, may feel like they oppose us, but who at the heart of it all actually are opposed to God and are enemies of God. And the the call to love our enemies, you could say, is the essence of discipleship to Jesus. The, the outworking of what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. And so I have some questions for us as we think about this call to love our enemies. The question is, who are we supposed to love? I've kind of been hinting at this, but it's worth digging into a little bit more. Who is our enemy? Maybe in your mind, you already thought of that person at work or at school, um, You know, maybe it's Ohio State fans, right? Maybe it's whoever came up with daylight savings time, especially when we lose an hour of sleep, right? Maybe it's the IRS, right? You know, it's that time of the year. Um, Maybe uh, it's, in a moment, your spouse who didn't remember to do what you asked them to do, right? Or your child uh, who didn't do what you asked them to do. Maybe it's your neighbor whose dog poops in your yard and doesn't pick it up, right? Like, maybe... Uh, It's people who drive slowly in the left lane, right, on the interstate. Like we we can kind of think of all these different enemies in our head. Um, But I think it's important to think about the context. If you flip back over where we are at in Luke 6 is a part of what's called the Sermon on the Plain, which parallels the Sermon on the Mount. And we see that Jesus had instructed his disciples and uh, and taught them in the Beatitudes uh, what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, the characteristics that define the kingdom of God. And part of what he said in verse 22 is he said, blessed are people, um, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The, the context, I think, in which Jesus is describing here is talking about those who actually oppose Jesus, who oppose the gospel, who oppose the, the message of the gospel. They may very well oppose uh, you, as a follower of Christ, due to your uh, commitment and obedience to, to Jesus, but underneath they're opposing you is an opposition to the gospel. And so, yes, it can be helpful to think about the people in your life that are particularly difficult. That's a helpful application. But in a way, I think what Jesus is saying is anyone who's apart from Christ, any person uh, who is opposed to me and to the gospel, they are to be recipients of your love. Not your reviling, not your uh, condemning, but of your, of your love. And in, a way, in, in the way of Jesus, you could say it this way, there's no one that should be outside our circle of love. There's no one that's outside of our circle of love. That's a great sermon point. But if I ask you to really tackle that and chew on that this week, that really steps on all of our toes. Because there's all kinds of people in our daily life that we like to put outside that circle whether it be because of convenience, because of past hurt, because of perceived um, conflicts, whatever it may be. In fact, if you skip down to verses 32 through 35, really, Jesus is going to, um, in many ways, repeat what what he, he said earlier. In verse 27, he says, love your enemies, and then he unpacks it even more. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Verse 32, he says... He says, look, if you love only those who love you, what good is that to you? Everyone does this. Even those who are apart from God. Sinners uh, love those who love them back. Uh, sinners do good to those who do good to them. Sinners lend and expect something in return. But, but he says in verse 35, love your enemies. Do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great in heaven. So what, what Jesus is saying is we do not love those who can love us back or who can pay us back in some way. In fact, the measure of Jesus' love is that He loved precisely those who didn't deserve His love. Precisely those who could offer nothing in return. You can think of it this way. There are four types of love. There's ordinary love, loving those who like us. That's understandable. It's easy to love those who like us. There's self-love, loving those who are like us. Then... There's extraordinary love, which is loving those who are unlike us. But radical love, the kind of love that I think Jesus is calling us to, and by calling us to radical love, I think he calls us to an extraordinary love as well. But radical love is loving those who dislike us. Not just loving those who are unlike us, but loving those who dislike us. This is who we are to love. And if we are to love those who dislike us... We are to love everyone with the kind of love that Jesus shows us as his sinners. So, who are we supposed to love? We love those who are unlike us. We love those who dislike us and everyone in between. But think about how we are supposed to love. Here we see that we are, you could unpack the idea of loving your enemies with these three statements: do good, bless, and pray. One commentator puts out uh, points out that this command to love others shows us that the command to love is not an appeal to the emotions. It's not an appeal to feel a certain way about people, um, <clears throat> but it's actually a command to the will. It's a call to action. In other words, he says the engine of the will and not the caboose of the feelings is what Jesus is talking about. What drives this kind of love is a decision, is an action uh, that's oriented towards others. So Jesus, Jesus isn't just going for a a loving feeling, right? The righteous brothers uh, had something there, but he's going for something more, right, than a loving feeling. Feeling, he's he's talking about uh, loving in action, and he says three things: love through doing good, love through how you speak, and love through prayer. Do good to those who hate you. What does it mean to love someone? You love someone by tangibly, practically doing good to them. I I see today as actually my wife's birthday. Um, She turns twenty five. Um, And uh, the most, uh, it's actually in her 30s, but the most 30-something birthday uh, for a mother is to be homesick uh, with a child. And so that's where she's at here on her birthday. But if you think of her, uh, tell her happy birthday uh, today. When I think about uh, someone who has shown me love and who I have seen love others through their actions, I I think about my wife. Maybe you have a, a spouse, maybe a family member who man, they, they love through action. There's no question their love because they demonstrate it through what they do, that they do good to others. They look for ways uh, to do good. They, they look for ways to, um, to, to, to serve. They look for ways to, to help. And There's something that's kind of disarming about a person who just shows up and, and helps without asking, that looks for where the need is and, and tries to, to meet it. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to even do that to those who hate you, to those who oppose you. So we love through doing good. Then we love through how we speak. He says we are to bless those who curse you. To bless someone can be uh, referring to the action that you take towards them. But in light of the, uh, the, the parallel or the contrast of cursing you, it's most likely speaking of the way that we speak. To others, That we would speak in ways that would bless others. No doubt, uh, fundamentally, we bless others with our words when we speak the truth of the gospel. When we share the good news of the... The best message you could share is the good news of the gospel. Even in its offense that we are not right with God because of our sin and we need to come to Him in repentance and in faith. But we also can love others through how we speak by caring for them, by speaking with respect, by speaking with uh, compassion, with gentleness. Jesus uh, tells us and demonstrates to us how He speaks with people who who are shocked that, that they are speaking to Him, and He does so in ways that often disarmed them through the way He would speak to them. And then perhaps one of the most underestimated ways that we love others is by praying for them. A lot of times we think how difficult it is to love, and we cut off one of the most foundational and fundamental ways that God calls us to love, to love through prayer. I was thinking about this passage and uh, a recent controversy. Some of you may have followed this uh, controversy, a pastor, a well-known pastor named Alistair Begg. Um, recently, um, I was on a talk. Was on a radio show and was asked a question. Somebody called in and, and asked the question of: uh, Should this grandmother go to her grandson's um, gay wedding? Uh, her grandson was getting married to a to a transgender uh, woman, and and she was asking: Should I go to the wedding? And Alistair responded uh, somewhat quickly. He said, I, I think you should go and you should sit in the front row with a gift. Um, <clears throat> and your ears may perk up like many people's ears and say, wait, wait a second. What did you say? Is that, is that the way that we show love to one another? <clears throat> and uh, what followed is many people, um, many other uh, faithful brothers and sisters, uh, kind of questioning uh, Pastor Begg's thinking on this process and uh, and, and kind of uh, issuing a, a very strong contrasting take on that issue. And in Alistair's response, uh, one of the things he talks about is the command to love our enemies and to bless our um, uh, to bless those who curse you and to uh, and to do good to those who, who hate you. And, and he uh, is wrestling with how do you be faithful to the gospel and uh, and yet compassionate towards sinners and in this very specific situation, he was saying this Christian grandmother whose grandson knows where she stands can, he, in his mind, go without risking confusion that she's in agreement with him by, by going to this wedding. I think Alistair's mistaken in his, uh, in his answer to that question. Um, <clears throat> because of the nature of a wedding, to go to a wedding by its very nature is to affirm and to bless, it's actually partaking. Uh, in a wedding. Uh, We don't often do this anymore, but this is why they used to ask the question, if anyone opposes the union of this man and woman, speak now or forever hold your peace. There's a reason that that's there to offer, and anyone who can't affirm and bless that marriage would by by duty have to speak up and to say so. But I think his conclusion is wrong. I don't think that a Christian should go to a uh, same-sex wedding because in doing so, it affirms to people in their sin. There's a whole host of other types of weddings that you shouldn't probably go to either because it would affirm someone in their sin. Um, and, and yet, I think his impulse is one that we have to listen to and to wrestle with. What does it mean to love our enemies? Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners and eating and drinking uh, with, with sinners because he loved his enemies. If you love your enemies, you will be mistaken sometimes and looked down upon, perhaps by other believers, for why are you with them? Why are you talking to them? Why are you uh, connecting with them? Why are you seeking to do good to them? It is a radical love to love those who are unlike us and dislike us. And that's what Jesus calls us to. As Christians, we will not revile any sinner, nor can we affirm any sin. Instead, in light of Jesus' call to love our enemies, we must love every sinner and declare the gospel that brings forgiveness of sins. The same message that leads us not to revile and not to affirm is also the same message that leads us to love. And if our definition of love is only shaped by a culture that, uh, that, that wants to not offend then we will go against the definition of love that God gives us, which neither compromises His holiness nor dismisses His mercy and kindness and compassion to sinners. And these two things, as as a church, we have to wrestle with. How do we hold fast to His holiness to uh, to the to the conviction of God's word to the to the truth about the the sinfulness of sin, and yet to the message of grace and forgiveness of sin for any sinner. And if, if in your head you don't put yourself in that category, you haven't thought enough about your sin. If God can forgive you, friend, He can forgive anyone. Like Paul, we ought to be able to say, I am the chief of sinners, and God has shown grace and mercy to me. Therefore, we don't revile any sinner, nor do we affirm sin. But instead, we love every sinner and declare the gospel that brings forgiveness of sins. And I bring this up because every pastor loves to step into a controversy in their sermon. No, that's not why I bring it up. I bring it up because I care about shepherding us to learn how to love well. There are many Christians who need to be challenged to be pushed to to reach out across difference, across the boundaries and the barriers to love others. And I think every gospel preaching church needs this call to love our enemies. However, as you swim in the water of our culture, what you are swimming against is a message of total affirmation and acceptance that says love and let live. God loves everyone. There there's, there's a message of love that's not bound to God's Word, that's bound to our own preference. And if we love uh, just in the way that we envision love to be best, then ultimately it's a self-love, not a Christ-centered love. A Christ-centered love is what Jesus calls us to in this passage. Love your enemies. And in many ways, what I will say about this as a final word This is something as believers we we have to wrestle with and pray with and encourage and spur one another on. And for 2,000 years, the church has been seeking to find ways not to revile sinners and affirm sin, but to truly love every sinner with the hope of the gospel. That's what God calls us to be. That's how we're to love. And this kind of love, Jesus goes on to say to us, Uh, and and, and describe to us what it will require of us. Look in verse 29. He says that to the one who strikes you uh, on the cheek, offer the other one also. Uh, From the one who takes your cloak, uh, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. So he shows us here that love is costly. The, the first two illustrations have to do uh, with loving beyond what others expect. Loving uh, beyond what's merely demanded. Most likely, the, the slap in the face isn't about the injury, but it's about an insult. Uh, to slap somebody, he says, um, on one cheek and... Uh, and to turn, to turn the other is most likely referring to a backhanded slap that would have been a, an insult. Uh, even those early Christians who followed Christ were put out of the synagogue. And part of their being put out of the synagogue was being backhanded and, and insulted and, and turned away. Jesus says when you're insulted, turn the other cheek also. When someone takes your, your tunic, don't just give them that, but even give them the shirt uh, that's on your back. This isn't saying that we shouldn't expect the government to protect people against injustice and punish evildoers. It's not saying that Christians are are defenseless and have no right to speak up. Uh, In fact, I heard about a a boxer who uh, turned into an evangelist. And uh, he was at an evangelist uh, meeting preparing to speak. And a few guys came up and started to heckle him. Um, And things got tense and one of the guys hit him. Uh, this this evangelist and um, he turned the other cheek he thought to himself Jesus told me to turn the other cheek and so he did and they hit him again <clears throat> and uh, and then he proceeded to, to knock all three of them out he thought to himself Jesus said turn one cheek and then turn the other after that he didn't give any further instruction you know so I guess uh, that's what we have to do right like it, it's it's not saying that, that there's no ability to, to defend yourself. We have no right to speak up on our own behalf. It's certainly not condemning or condoning injustice and, and allowing evil to go unpunished. But the personal ethic of the Christian is to endure insult and, and to endure even a certain level of injustice as a reflection of the love and the compassion of Christ. Jesus is saying to love people like this will be costly. To not retaliate when someone insults you is costly. It hurts to to give of something that somebody takes from you with a desire to express the love of Christ is is costly. It's unexplainable kindness that costs you something. And if you've had a friend, uh, maybe an aloof friend or a parent can relate to this um, or you've you've had someone in your life who sometimes just takes and takes without ever any consideration of you like it's really hard that that hurt is real and yet there's this real sense of I'm willing to do this out of a love for you a de- desire that you would know you were loved and to, to demonstrate love it's, it's a costly love but this also requires generosity the scenario Jesus describes in giving to one in need or lending money to ask is, is, is to be generous. It's not saying that there's never any uh, room to lend money at interest, but it's talking about a type of lending that's predatory, that takes advantage of a person in need. And, and Jesus is, is, is really calling us here for uh, calling us to an open-handedness, that we would be open-handed towards others, not allowing our stuff our money, to be an impediment against loving others because our joy is found in blessing others, not in holding on to what we have. That's a message that runs against the grain of our culture, to live generously. But also it demands intentionality. I love uh, what's called the the golden uh, rule where it says that we are to, uh, as we wish others do to us, do so to them. This This statement... Uh, In the negative was very common in the first century in ancient texts. The the idea, basically, that you should not do to someone what you uh, uh, don't want them to do to you. So, if you don't want someone, this is a you know good rule of thumb. If you haven't figured this out as an adult, this is for you. For kids, I'm I'm helping you out here. Uh, If you don't want someone to hit you, don't hit them, right? You know, how many times I've told my children that they hit me. Did you hit them? What do you expect? You know, when you hit them. Um, You know, if you you don't want somebody to steal your car, it would be a good idea not to steal somebody else's car, right? Like, don't do the stuff that you don't want others to others that you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus doesn't say that. He actually puts it in the positive. He elevates our call to love by calling us to a type of intentionality. He says, think about it. What you would want someone to do for you, do for them. I want somebody to treat me with kindness and respect. So treat others with kindness and respect. I want somebody to help me out when I'm in need. So help somebody out when they're in need. I want somebody to check in on me when I'm struggling. So check in on somebody when they're struggling. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This intentionality is what love looks like, to see others and to pursue others, to take the first step, to take the first action and draw near to others. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And, and sometimes when we think about this, it's easy to kind of get lost in the big picture of what it means to, to love like this, to love uh, intentionally and sacrificially and um, and to, to love with generosity, what does it actually look like? Let me just give you some things that would encourage you as you think about how to love and bless others. We think about Easter grants. We think about uh, uh, the, the intentionally pursuing others that we, might de- that we might demonstrate the hope of the gospel, the love of Christ, inviting someone to an Easter egg hunt, coming uh, to, to Easter service with us. Eight out of ten people say they'd go to church if somebody invited them, right? Like as simple as what it means to put ourselves in a position to do that uh, this Easter season. Here's, Here's where it begins. Get to know your neighbors by name and pray for them. When you think about your neighbor to your left and your right, do you know their names? Do you know something about them? Do you pray for them? The same applies for our church family. Get to know one another by name and pray for each other. Are we praying for each other in this regard? The call to, to love and serve others, to live missionally, is not one that we bear alone, that we do in community. Also, when, you, when you're in conversation with others, look and listen for needs around you. And then when you see a need, act. Let me, let me encourage you. You have permission when you see needs in people's lives around you to act, to help. You don't need anybody else's permission. If you see a need, you can act. That person may say to you, I don't want your help. To which you'll say, Okay. Respect them. But odds are, people who need help often don't want to ask for help. A coworker stressed out at work, bring them a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Let them know you're praying for them. Your neighbor lost a loved one, offer to bring them a meal or pick up their mail while they're out of town. You see a need, act on it. Surprise someone with kindness. Don't wait until there's a need, just act. Because you want to demonstrate God's love. If there's something that you're good at, consider offering it uh, to, to someone else to be a blessing to them, to help with them. Maybe you know how to fix cars or change oil. Maybe you know how to fix a fence or mow a yard or, uh, or help out with kids or uh, do something around the house. If you, see, if you have something you're good at, consider being a blessing to others. The special occasions that come along in people's lives, celebrate them with others. Show up. Part of what it means to love others is just showing up and being present in their life. Similarly, when you have things in your life that you want to celebrate, invite others into them. Invite coworkers and neighbors and friends to celebrate those occasions with you. If you're getting a cup of coffee or getting a meal, invite somebody to come along with you or to bring an extra cup to someone as a friend. You have something, some extra, so a meal that you made or, or something else. Just drop it off to be a blessing to others. It doesn't mean you have to hang the moon for someone. It just means that you have to move towards them intentionally. And so as we think about Easter grants, I want to encourage us to begin praying and considering how we'll bless others. And I just want to give you these two general encouragements uh, as, we, as we think about how to bless others. Don't think of something small as insignificant. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's insignificant. What matters most is not the size of the gesture, but the intentionality with which you act. And then finally, pray until you see a way to be a blessing. Sometimes if you're like me, I'm like not very creative. Uh, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I think about it. And once I've thought about it and I don't come up with anything, then it's like, okay, well, I thought about it. But I'll just move on. I Pray. Pray until you see a way. Ask God to open your eyes. Don't just count on, your, on yourself, but ask God to open your eyes so you can see how to be a blessing to others. Finally, I just want to close um, with asking ourselves of why we love like this. I read earlier verse 32 uh, through 34 in many ways uh, re- reiterates what uh, Jesus said in verses 27 through 28. Of what it looks like to do good and to bless and to be generous and uh, to be intentional. But verse 35 really brings it home of why we love others this way. And most fundamentally, we love others because we've received God's undeserving mercy. Undeserved mercy, excuse me. We love others because we've received God's undeserved mercy. See, See how it says in verse 35, love your enemies... Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward reward will be great. And notice the statement. You will be sons of the Most High, for He, God, is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And He restates it in a slightly different way. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see, the, the call to radically love others flows out of our identity as children of God and of God's identity as a merciful and loving Father. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. He shows mercy to sinners. I mean, think about what this means for us. It means that we demonstrate that we are sons and daughters of God by how we love our He's not saying that you will become a son or daughter of God based on how you love, but that it is a reflection of the fact that you are a son or daughter of God. If you love your enemies, that means you belong in the family of God because our Father loved those who were ungrateful and evil. I I love the... The connection of these two it's not just the ungrateful like I can get that you know I've got sometimes ungrateful little ones all around me and I know the call to love them but the evil to love those who are evil does that not challenge us to love in the way that Christ loves I love Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. It says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a picture of life apart from Christ. No matter how well it's painted on the outside, that's the condition of the heart. But notice this when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When the goodness and loving kindness showed up, it pursued those who were hated by others and who hated one another, whose lives were marked by passions and pleasures and passed our days in malice and envy, hating God and hating one another. God showed up in kindness and His goodness, His grace and His mercy, and He saved us. I don't know what you think about God. It's easy sometimes to get mixed up in our image of God. He's up there, disconnected from us. Maybe we feel like He's angry with us. Jesus reminds us once more what he chooses to emphasize about God is what we need to hear because it's the very reason that we love. God is kind to sorry sinners like me and you. And his kindness is demonstrated in his mercy. If we got what we deserved on any given day, we would be doomed. We would be damned to hell. But God gives us what we don't deserve. And he gives us what only Christ deserves. That's grace and that's mercy. We love others because we've received God's mercy. So I want to just give you these practical takeaways as as we close out this morning. Number one, dwell on God's mercy. Everything that we're talking about is not about us proving something to God or proving something to other people. It flows out of receiving. Have you received God's mercy? When you think about God, do you think God has been merciful to me? God has not given me what I deserve. God has given me more than I could ever have asked for, more than I deserve, more than I I could ever merit. He's given me what I don't deserve through through Christ's death and His resurrection. When you think about God, do you think about God as merciful, as a merciful Father to you? And if you don't, friends, I want to ask you, what's keeping you from doing that? Have you confessed your sin so that you can receive His forgiveness? So you can experience His grace and His mercy? But if you have, and you're like me and you're prone to forget it, then take the encouragement to dwell on God's mercy. Dwell on Titus 3, 3 through 8. And then look at who God has put around you. Look up and then look out. And then determine that you're going to display love towards those around you. And as you display love towards those around you, also commit yourself to tell them of how God has shown mercy to you. I love when Jesus heals the man who is demon-possessed in Mark chapter 5. He tells him to go home and tell them how God has had mercy on him. Tell them all that God has done for you. Isn't that us? That's our testimony. To tell others of what God has done for us. And to say, if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. Let's pray.